Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. Today, I have a very special episode about a subject near and dear to my heart, Generation X. I say near and dear, but I actually feel a little bit ambivalent about even calling myself Gen X because, of course, that's what it means to be Gen X. It comes with air quotes, maybe an eye roll at the very idea of something as crass as being a part of a generational club that we didn't ask to be a part of. But that is Generation X. So here we are, Generation X in the year 2022 at midlife. It's been decades since the cliche of the slacker generation was invented. So I wanted to talk about what happened to us, where we fit into these weird times we're in. And to do that, I have three fantastic guests here to talk with me today and make me feel at home with who I am. And that is Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. I think this is your first time on this podcast. Isn't that true? That might be, that might be the case, Joe. I'm, I'm, I'm here for our generation. Thank you so much for coming on. We've got Molly Jong-Fast, a writer at Atlantic Magazine and host of a brand new politics podcast, Fast Politics. Hello, Molly. Hi. Thanks for having me. This is very exciting. And last but certainly not least, Patton Oswalt, actor, stand-up hey. comedian. Hello. Thanks for having me on. You're, you're on right on the very day. We taped today on the day of your latest stand-up special on Netflix, We All Scream. Did I talk over you when you were giving my credits out? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I jumped the gun. Yeah, now we're erasing the entire part where we mention your Netflix special, so forget it. Forget oh, the next one. Damn it. <laughs> it's okay. Gen X is not promotional. Ex- yeah, man. Hey, right? it's, it's either word of mouth or nothing. That's right. That's right. That's right. We're trying to be authentic here and bring <laughs> bring the real deal. So the reason I wanted to talk about Generation X was something I saw the novelist um, Gabe Hudson write on Twitter. He's always tweeting about Gen X. He said, Gen X hearts were made for the apocalypse. And I've, being a Gen Xer, I love this expression. First off, I hadn't thought about my generation in a long time. It seemed we stopped talking about ourselves a long time ago, you know, we're congenitally ignored. But it occurred to me that, yeah, we've had a sort of groundedness in our skepticism because we always thought the end was nigh, right? So everybody else is shocked and horrified that the world is ending and we're kind of like, well, what did you expect? So so that's what I wanted to talk about. I mean, that's a really interesting way to put it. It reminds me of the Lars von Trier film, Melancholia, where the suicidally depressed character is the one character that's actually ready for the apocalypse and handles it with a level of grace. Uh, it's, it's almost like they've been in rehearsal for it. So yeah, we grew up under, oh, we're going to get nuked. It's it, We grew up with, we, we got inoculated to nihilism very early. That's right. Well, and, and there's some sort of perspective was that our inheritance was already like a bummer. And so anything after that, was just going to be unexpectedly delightful. Um, 
when I say that, though, do you even think about your generation as a thing very often nowadays, all these years later? I mean, it was, in, it was in the 90s that they invented us, right, as a generation, as a concept. But in the interim, has not been discussed that much. I always feel like our generation, that sort of the baby boomers took up all the oxygen. I feel like people are going to get mad at me for this. But they kind you know, like I'm the daughter of a baby boomer and they were like, we're here, you know, we're on the cover of Time Magazine. They were always on the cover of Time Magazine, right? Like, you know, it was like there was like a decade where it was just like boomers and books about boomers. And, you know, and I think that our generation, I'm on the sort of younger side of it, but I remember being in grade school and like it was the first Earth Day or at least it was the first, it probably had been going on a long time, but it was the first one that my grade celebrated. And I remember then, which was 30 or 20 something years ago, thinking like, we are so incredibly, can I curse? Yes. We are so incredibly fucked. And that was more than two decades ago. So I do think that there was this sort of inherent nihilism. I think, I mean, I think statistically we're outnumbered by boomers before us and millennials ahead of us. You know, there there literally are fewer than us, so we do get drowned out a little bit. And I think it's true that it's not as, as if we kind of, in a like a kumbaya way, move forward as a generation, but I feel like there is a lot to be said for our shared experiences you know, the the very particular Gen X memories that pull us together. I think about things like the Challenger explosion, you know, which sort of defined my childhood. And to your point about nihilism, it was supposed to be this incredible moment with a teacher on board and all of that. And, and we, we sort of watched this tragedy unfold before us. So I think about that. But then there's also, on the flip side, I will say, as much as we grew up feeling like we were going to be nuked, it also strikes me that, you know, we also saw the Berlin Wall come down. We did see that the world order could be changed. Things that felt entrenched could be different. And I feel like those are some of the contradictions as a generation that we still grapple with. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. That Berlin Wall thing is really kind of the unofficial beginning of the 90s. Mm-hmm. I remember trying to figure out what that meant afterwards. And then, you know, the Francis Fukuyama concept that, um, well, now the world will go on to become a grand utopian liberal democracy all around the world. And that we kind of like digested that idea. And then the 90s felt like kind of like a, a static condition in which we were going to now become like, um, I don't know, like archivists of the 20th century through our local like VHS uh, rental, you know, uh, <laughs> store. You know, we would just we would just watch movies and and you know uh, reflect ironically on uh, our cultural inheritance. But 
there was definitely a lot of irony, probably because we were also raised on a lot of boomer nostalgia. It yeah. isn't even, it, we weren't even raised on the boomer culture. We were raised on the nostalgia of their youth, like yeah. fake 50s happy days, mm-hmm. um, like all this uh, looking back nostalgia. And then Ronald Reagan brings back this nostalgic 50s. And the only way to react to it was with irony. And it also irony helped to to create an a, an enemy to push against when there was no enemy for a while. You, you you mentioned that Berlin Wall falling. Well, then we all were living in this world where like, oh well, Cold War is over and maybe racism's over, and so we mm-hmm. all got to be. I we we would do that ironic racism, ironic sexism to make fun of that, and but a lot of us didn't realize we were just laying down the blueprint for the alt right that was coming um, after the, uh, after 2001, but we just, we were all doing it ironically and really feasting well on it, but not realizing what we were laying down. Yeah. But the other thing was that you would see things that you would never see now, like shows, like remember Swingers? Remember Mm -hmm. that movie? Yeah. Like they were like the kind of sexism in Swingers or even Entourage, you know, they're a group of men going to have sex with lots of women. They treat women terribly. I mean, like the show, the trope of the show was like, they're terrible to women. Isn't that hilarious? And, you know, I mean, so I do think Patton has a good point that there was a lot of like normalizing really destructive stuff, which was- And there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of propaganda in that too, because the underlying thing was, yes, these characters are horrible, but you gotta love them. Don't you gotta love them? So it's that weird nudging, like, you've gotta live with this behavior. If this is what built the world, this is why we have highways, because mm. of shit like that. Like, it's that weird, there was a weird propaganda element to it, too, that, that was, um, again, hidden, but it was there. Well, I was gonna say, I was just, I've just been reading the book of the 90s by Chuck Klosterman, which is actually a really smart book and I would recommend it, but he has a whole thing about Reality Bites, for instance, which is like a, a movie that supposedly, you know, encapsulates our generation, but how both boomers and then afterwards millennials would watch this movie and not understand why the Ethan Hawke character was the hero because he treated the girl badly, <laughs> right? And the Ben Stiller, who was the successful and, you know, quote unquote inauthentic guy, but he treated the woman correctly, you know, uh, was not, he was not the good guy, not the guy you're supposed to associate with, right? Because Ethan Hawke was more authentic, right? Because he was ironic, right? Which is Mm -hmm. itself ironic. But uh, I I think though that I, I, that critique, Patton, I heard you say that on Al Al Franken's uh, podcast about this Mm -hmm. idea that, uh, you know, maybe irony in, in the rear view, uh, turned out to have sort of an insidious quality to it. Well, know? elements to it, definitely. The, the ironic racism, the ironic sexism of, I'm going to make fun of this thing by embodying it and showing you how ridiculous it is. Right. It's like we created skin mods for a video game that these people could then put on and then move around the world in. <laughs> no, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, I think a lot of it had some kind of... Um, cultural survival element to it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until like, you know, if we get to, if we cite 9-11 as really the true end of the 90s, yeah. when 
as Graydon Carter, former editor of Vanity Fair, said, irony is dead. Well, it wasn't totally, but it definitely sobered people up. And, um, you know, and it, I remember feeling at the end of the 90s, um, and especially after that event, uh, feeling slightly ashamed of all the 90s decadence, you know, feeling mm-hmm. like that it had been a time of drift and that we had our apoliticalness had come to look bad in the rear view, right? Yeah. I also think it was like a truly stupid time to be alive. Like <laughs> there were so many stupid things that happened. For example, there were like a whole tranche of these celebrity interviews. We had these like, you know, let's we'd have these interviews that would be like, let's look at, you know, da 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 famous actress's house. Let's how does she what is her daily ritual of yoga. And I mean, there was a lot of really stupid, you know, again, I'll curse, uh, shit. Like, I think there was a time, certainly like 95 to 99, uh, where there was just this sort of like fawning celebrity culture that was, you know, just like, you know, these magazine pieces that were like, you know, 4,000 words on, and I'm not even, I'm talking about like magazines that no longer exist anymore, but that were really built on this idea of just like, they were almost advertorials. And um, that I think was really. uh, But nothing really had, uh, there was no such thing as virality at the time. You could kind of take it or leave it. You could ignore it. I mean, on the contrary, I feel like one of the signature characteristics of Gen X is that we were detached, whatever was our our phrase. And, And as it happens, with the rise of social media, the absolute opposite began to take place, which was that the whole momentum of American society was about being connected. And that was just not something that we did, I feel like, in, in you know, in our... Yeah. We didn't have the technology for it, for starters, but also it just wasn't how we were programmed. Like, we, our thing was to detach. Right. And, yeah. and we detached out of... It was a defense mechanism. It was, I'm so terrified of being boring that I'm going to act bored. And, that, and I, I know that I'm paraphrasing, you know, it's better to uh, act bored than be thought of as boring. I forgot who said that. <laughs> might have been Evelyn Waugh. But it's that whole idea of I'm never going to be uncool if I don't care about anything. If I blanket am detached from everything, then I'm always cool and safe. And I think that was a, a stance. I did it too. It was that you're young, you're insecure, and that's what you do. Yeah. Well, that, and that was the vibe of all the music. Yeah. And yeah. the movies too. I watched, um, uh, I did some homework for our podcast this weekend. I watched Say Anything. Um, a, a movie that holds up. And, you know, there's that great scene. They're behind the gas and sip and giving John Cusack advice on his love life. And he's like, hey, if you guys know so much about girls, what are you doing out here alone on a Friday night beside the gas and sip? And they're like, it's our choice, man, by choice, you know, but that's Personal exactly choice. It. Right. <laughs> Personal choice. It's like, right, we're going to. And that's a movie about a world, but but that's a movie where everyone is trying to push him to be cynical and he keeps rejecting cynicism and he keep, and, and the few times that he goes, to, weirdly, the, the people who save him from cynicism are his um, girlfriends, are the people mm-hmm. when he goes, hey, man, I'm just a guy. And they're like, don't be a guy, be a man, like care about something or someone it's a it's a really revolutionary film, especially in terms of like teen films. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, by the way, I, just, I I I keep thinking of this thing that 
when Molly was talking about how just silly that chunk of time was. I remember after 9-11, there was an Onion headline, which is, America hungers to care about stupid shit again. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. we didn't realize the paradise mm-hmm. we were living in, where it's like, mm-hmm. Britney Spears was literally on the cover of the New York Times. Like, that was a lead story. Like, that's how, that's actually how easy our lives were. We were mm-hmm. following stuff like Britney Spears or, or reality shows. It, it, my mm-hmm. God, that, we didn't know how good we had it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, that's what I, well, partly why I wanted to have this conversation was thinking about, do we have like a generational legacy? Is any of it something we like or can be proud of, or should we reference again? And I, I was thinking about it in this term because it was definitely a pre-digital age. There was some internet towards the end of the 90s, you know, but uh, it was like GeoCities, Right. So there was yeah. like not much, there was no social media. And my, my big memory of coming up and even being, you know, realizing what Generation X was going to mean, I got the book, the Douglas Copeland book that mm-hmm. named it. And thinking about that time, there was this pervasive sense of boredom, you know, that, that we were in a slow time in which nothing was happening. And we were, feel like we had missed some the revolution, right? And the boomers reminded us of that constantly. But but now I look back <laughs> on that time and I feel um, nostalgia for the boredom, for the lack of a digital world. Well, and also it was like the last time that content had value. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it um, yeah. and that will devastate the rest of us. But I mean, I remember... I mean, I just, my content was valuable in a way and magazines were, I mean, I mean, I actually think that the kind of internet culture is really good for us and that it's, it's like created a world where anyone can comment on anything. And I actually think that's great. Like I'm a big fan of that. And I think that there aren't gatekeepers the same way there used to be, which I think is amazing and like very egalitarian and wonderful and, you know, but the same at the same point, like our content, especially as a writer, is less valuable. And there's sort of a feeling like maybe I could get this for free on Google. And I think that is um, something that was like a sea for certainly for us as writers, it was a sea change. Yeah. For starters, we never would have called it content. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. That was definitely yeah, a millennial. We so thing. casually use that term now it tells you where we've we've come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. I remember, though, um, as I was getting into my career in my 20s and 30s, as the internet began to grow, and the millennials were the first to kind of come up in it exclusively, did not have any memory of the analog period, how comfortable they were with the idea of just uh, marketing themselves and with things that had to do with marketing. And we had come from this world where all that was like, ugh, you know, reject corporate stuff, you know, we don't want to, we're not well, going to lower I don't ourselves look ne- to that. I don't want to look needy. That was our big thing. I never want to mm. look needy. That's right. Yeah. And you know, people got to come to me. That's you know. right. And the, it's this back to this idea of selling out. And I don't know if you guys read that uh, Janine Garofalo profile in the Times a few weeks ago, which yeah. was amazing by Jason Zinneman. And it was, you know, she's not on the internet. She's basically stayed true to like the Gen X, whatever that was, some kind of, you know, code. And, you know, 
whether that was good or bad for her career, let's put that aside. But I definitely got had a little moment of remembering what it felt like when we made the transition out of the world we had come from to this new world and feeling like ambivalent about it from the beginning all the way through. I was just like, oh, really? We have to have a avatar on the internet and sell our junk, you know, on social media and all the other <laughs> crap that we have to do now. But and, and kind of like, you know, not really digging it, and but now eventually accepting it. But now I look back and I wonder, what's the what do we think about the idea of selling out? I mean, I had a mother who wrote about me my entire life. So I never had quite a moment. You know, I was like, oh, good. Everyone else is like me now. And, you know, the thing people used to always write about her in the 90s that was like considered really mean was that she was like a huge sellout and that she was like constantly marketing herself. So for me, I was like, okay, I guess now everyone's doing that. And I actually really was totally fine. I mean, the one thing is like I've been really careful with my kids because I felt like though that decision was made for me and it was actually weirdly made for my father because my grandfather used to write about my father, though not in quite the same way. I just felt like it was sort of natural, but I, but I understand how sociopathic that is, but that was just my personal take on it. Yeah. I mean, I learned very early that a lot of times the people that are yelling sell out are the people that didn't have anything that anyone wanted to buy in the first place. So (laughs) by yelling sell out and pointing fingers, that's another safety measure for themselves, another defensive measure. The thing that really hit me about when I read that Janine Garofalo article was this is the one thing that has changed. I, I, you know, yes, you should absolutely be allowed to sell your your work, your art and and make a living at it. But we seem to have gotten away from like someone like Janine is, yes, I'd like to be in a movie and then I'd like downtime where I'm just reading a book or just staring at the wall and letting my mind wander because that's where my creativity comes from. And we've introduced this 24-7 grind mentality where the people that wanted to live like little lives on the fringe doing creative stuff and making enough money to survive, those people are being pushed out. It's almost like the people that grind all the time and, and, and aren't comfortable just creating were resentful of those people. So they've created a world where, no, you can't just run a little indie bookshop and make just enough to pay your rent and feed yourself, but still have your downtime. It's like, if you're not grinding all the time, you should be wiped off the map. And that Mm. to me is really, really scary. These I'm seeing kids coming up where they're like, they don't understand an hour of an hour of downtime. That is not unplanned and is not profitable and is not giving a dividend is terrifying to them. And, (laughs) but all great, all the truly great art we've ever loved was from people just sitting around trying to fight boredom Mm. and then you come up with something new and that's boredom is being taken away from us and boredom is a commodity we need. 100%. I mean, that's what I was trying to say before when I, I'm not, I always as a Gen Xer was against nostalgia because I felt like we saw the boomers just abuse it and exploit it so grossly for years and years. So I thought we're not going to do that and I'm not nostalgic anyway. But one thing that I am nostalgic for, it's that sense of boredom, that sense of quiet, you know, that Mm -hmm. sense of like not being nagged 24-7 by this digital beast driving, you know, the culture. And there was that sense that I, when I think back on the early 90s or even high school or whatever um, in the 80s, a sense that, you know, you walked out the door untethered 
<laughs> from right. anything. And you could just be in this kind of freedom that is almost like when I think about that freedom, it's almost like a thing that doesn't exist anymore. I have a guy who's a who teaches uh, a college, and one of his assignments for the kids who are it's a photography course is like turn your phone off and start driving around to places you don't know mm-hmm. and get lost. And it's completely foreign to them the idea of being lost. Yeah. Right. And I feel like that's a that's a loss. I mean. There are really good places to get lost. I I just would say, like, I've spent some time in Canada recently where we just, you know, I mean, I I do think you can get lost even with many devices going. But I understand what you're saying. And I mean, I do think like a lot of those things we didn't have. Remember, I used to remember, like, memorize phone numbers. Mm hmm. Yeah. Right. I would I would set them to songs. I would set (laughs) phone numbers to songs. I don't know if you guys did that, but I would make them into little seven note tunes and that's how I would remember them. And I do think like that was actually quite good for our brains was like Mm -hmm. remembering these phone numbers and remembering like how to get places and that kind of thing. And I do think like, I mean, I'm always like, I'm always a little bit uh, hesitant with this like idea that the internet has changed our brains because I feel like it's so easy. But I do think to a certain extent, like we just have a different skill set now. Yeah, or a, di- a different a different tolerance to be in ignorance of something, like I'm right. you know I'm watching a movie, and I'm like I know that who is that person who's that and so I'm watching the movie and I love the movie but I also know that I can just look on my phone and see who that you know secondary member of the cast is and then I can go down a rabbit hole and it's like on the one hand is it bad to have that knowledge no it's not but on the other hand. Back in the day, you would kind of just let it wash over you and it would be a part of the experience. And I do feel a little bit of nostalgia for that, like the ability to let some of that stuff go. There's a a feature now on Amazon Prime called X-Ray. If you turn it on while you're watching a show or movie, information will pop up on the side of the screen of this actor was in (laughs) or if there's a line of dialogue like in the Lord of the Rings show they go what she's referring to happens in the Silmarillion and like so there's never a time where you have to put anything together by yourself it's like GPS but for art oh my god will that make us stupider ultimately (laughs) I feel like it will I mean I definitely want to do it and I'm not saying I don't need to be stupid you know I mean I'm not saying it, it is a criticism but it seems like it will ultimately make us all stupider or or less or maybe I'm always, I don't know I'm always wary of saying a new technology will make us stupid because I remember that Socrates thought that writing things down would make people stupid <laughs> yes, he thought that writing true. would he's like no it's the oral tradition that gives us our intelligence <laughs> in our brain why would you write it down so there's always I, I'm very leery of being that that's gonna make us dumb because I don't want to be the guy that's like, I tell you, these horseless carriages will be the end of everything. You know, I, so you always got to be careful of that. Yeah. But I do think, I, I fully agree with you, but I do think that there's, I mean, I think about it when I read like a big 19th century novel, you know, sometimes right. in order to let a work of art sink in, you have to be comfortable with, with the knowledge that you don't necessarily follow every single thing that's going on or like reading Faulkner you know like it's mysterious it's art (laughs) sometimes you don't get it 
Sometimes, I mean, I remember the first time I read a Faulkner novel and I was like, did I miss something? What happened here? You know, but, but, but the point of it or, a, you know, a film or something, it's like the point of it is you don't necessarily know everything all the time. And I think that there's something humbling about that in the face of art. And I think that there's also something humbling about it, even in the face of like current events and news. And, and in a way, the fallacy mm-hmm. of believing that you can look up every single fact, you can fact check everything everyone says, yeah. you can find out who that, who that actor was on IMDb. Like it gives us a false sense that we can know everything. And that's just, that's not true. And there's something not human about that. And so I feel like there's some tension there. Although in, in in Radhika's defense, when people read Faulkner when it came out, they were just as confused. So they yes. don't don't feel bad about being confused. The no, no. people that got I'm that book hot off the press were like, "What the hell is?" Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was. I just read the Count of Monte Cristo, and you see, not only is yeah, it's the fun adventure novel, but you realize what people were referencing in their version of pop culture. Like at one point, someone says he looks like Count Ruthven from that. Uh, Shelley's story, the vampire, like they're referencing other works of art that they're reading. Like that was going on at the time. Yeah. I have to say I'm married to a PhD in English. So anytime I read anything, I'm just like, (laughs) what does that mean? Who is that? And for like a long time, my dad used to call him up to ask him things and then we made him stop. But yes, I I actually, I reread Pride and Prejudice a couple of years ago and I felt a a sense of uh, vindication when there's a scene at a gathering like a party during the day and and the conversation kind of gets boring and everyone just starts like one person starts just randomly reading the books on the shelves one woman starts <laughs> knitting a couple of guys start playing with like oh that was their twitter that was their okay mm-hmm. things are awkward what can i go look at like people were always looking for different forms of distraction but we just we just invented the crack form of distraction. They had the old-fashioned, gotta-roll-your-own-reefer version of distraction. We just managed to fuse it into something super addictive. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I was thinking about, um, you know, we're talking about the the effects of um, the digital chaos on us and, and whether or not... Um, whether or not it's unique, but I, I was thinking about this newest trend uh, of people coming out of the pandemic and coming out of all the trauma we've been through in the last few years of quiet quitting. And mm-hmm. I, uh, when I found out what this was, I was like, oh, well, we invented that like uh, 30 years ago. It was like, you, you, you basically get a job and you don't do it. 
right? Yeah. And uh, right. <laughs> uh, so, so it seems like a great setup, and that was basically the M.O. of everybody I knew in 1993. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I, and I, I set that up just to say, you know, we have our critiques of ourselves from that time, and a lot of them are valid, but I feel like there's a lot of virtues in the, what we're noticing about what we liked. What do we like about ourselves? I guess I'm asking, and that, to ask a Gen Xer, what do you like about yourself is asking for trouble, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Well, we are good critics. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're good skeptics. We're good, like, we're, we, were, we invented the whole, hey, everyone take a minute here. Just, just can we all <laughs> just pause for one second? Look, I'm excited too, but can we just give this thing a second look before we all jump on board? This might be BS. That's right. Yeah. Well, BS detectors, we that's what we were all about is having one. Maybe we overused it. Mm -hmm. Well, I also um, think but we also we also invented the thing and uh, we got it from people like Albert Brooks and Martin Mull and and Steve Martin to an extent where instead of criticizing something we're going, this is bad, we would embrace it until we strangled it. Like <laughs> like um, you know, Gary Shandling was so disgusted with a lot of what he saw in showbiz, so he goes, I'm going to create the most showbiz character possible to show you how awful it is and albert yeah. brooks did that and you know so there was always that like oh we're going to embrace it the thing we don't like until we strangle it didn't larry david do that a little larry bit david Kurt? absolutely did that um i think that um uh jerry seinfeld seinfeld um but yeah there was always that i'm going to personify the thing that's awful albert brooks was the best at it like i'm yeah. going to show you what's awful by being that person. Yeah. You know, we had a certain kind of like really appealing self-loathing that the younger generation <laughs> and kids you the could learn from us does not have. <laughs> yeah, really? yeah. I mean, you know, that sort of faux humility. Like we genuinely were a generation that didn't like itself. And I mean, that's not nothing. You know. Well, and that's <laughs> irony was our way of like coping with that. Well, that's to your point. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not novel in pointing this out, but we had the boomers before us extremely self confident, mm -hmm. and the millennials after us completely self confident. And by self confident, you know, we could also say narcissistic and self involved. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. we had a sort of, there was a layer of self reflection that we called irony, I guess, and we used it in our humor and we, had it on our music, yeah. and it was all sort of embedded in that, right? There, there's you know, a reason that uh, Janine Garofalo's production company is called I Hate Myself Productions. <laughs> that's the name of her production company. I'm not kidding. Oh, my God. That's well, and I think to Molly's point, yeah. you know, we, we've been hard on ourselves. But for that reason, I think as much as we might like to think that the, the typical Gen Xer is a slacker, I think we all know that there are a lot of very hardworking Gen Xers out there, and if, and in a way, the way I think the way that we, when we do work hard, generationally, we want there to be some meaning behind it, because we are skeptical mm -hmm. of we are skeptical of of effort for effort's sake. So there's a way in mm, which yeah. like we're motivated by substance, and we're and we're skeptical of of anything that is not substantive. But I but I don't think that has prevented us. I feel like when we achieve, it's because our heart's in it and we really mean it. Maybe that sounds too earnest for Gen X, but, you know, there's got to be something there for us. I mean, yeah, something authentic. 
the, the term slacker is also a celebration and a rebuke. We were always told right. we're working so hard to make things easier for you. It's like, well, then when does the ease kick in? Like if, if you were <laughs> doing that, aren't I celebrating your achievement by just spending a late morning in the coffee shop arguing with my friends? Like, isn't that a celebration that I have time to slack? That's right. We finally got some slack. That's right. And we were also going back to the baby boomer hippie renaissance thing that came out of Jack Kerouac and Ginsburg and all these things. There was this bohemianism that they'd abandoned for Wall Street, Mm -hmm. you know, just to be broad and (laughs) use a broad brush. Um, And, you know, the slacker thing was sort of like, okay, we're going to be bohemians. We're going to hang around the coffee shop and work as little as humanly possible and, you know, Mm -hmm. make fun of people. So that made us, though, or we were known for having been apolitical, right? Having maybe not felt like politics was worthwhile. There was a period when a lot of people felt that way. And generationally, just to be cliche, we were apolitical. I also think like we had a, um, the older generation did not cede their power Mm -hmm. at all. That's right. So, like, we still have, I mean, the Speaker of the House is 78 years old. Yep. Our president is 79. I mean, they were not like, oh, it's your turn now. They were like, you know, we're going to stay in here until we die. So, I mean, and this is not in any criticism of people being older. I think it's wonderful. But it is, like, generationally, there was a gerontocracy that was not interested in ceding any of their power. Right. That's right. And not only that, they white knuckled their youth. Um, they acted young way longer than they should have because <laughs> oh, so youth true. was so much about their identity. So they held on to that for way too long. And um, I think Gen X, weirdly enough, between the boomers and the millennials, Gen X might be the one generation that's actually going to be okay with just going, yeah, I'm getting old. I, I'm not that cool anymore. Like, we might actually be okay with that. Yeah. We may be actually admitting that right here on this podcast. Maybe this is the demarcation point where we accept our old age. Larry King. I mean, Larry King was on television forever. Yeah. I mean, not to like pick on Larry King here because he's dead and may he rest in peace. But I mean, that show was on for 80 years or 90 years. (laughs) Yes, it was on for 90 years. Yes, 90 years. It was on before television was invented. That's how old he was. It was those suspenders, and he, he was, was a baby He started suspenders. broadcast. He just sat out in a cornfield talking to people. Yes. And then eventually they had to build, they had to invent television around him so they could broadcast his show. Listen, Larry King should be an inspiration to us all. No one yes. has done more interviews without reading the book than Larry King. Yeah. Well, he yeah. wasn't a boomer, right? He was like a greatest generation guy, practically. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. By the way, just a a piece of trivia on the side is that uh, Ross Perot uh, announced his candidacy on Larry King's program. Yeah. I remember years ago. Wow. Um, I don't remember that. Wow. Yeah. So a little bit of a precursor to certain entertainment-oriented outlier candidates of the future. But I was just reading an article about a month ago, very disturbing to me as a Gen Xer, which was – it was in Politico, and it was about – how Trump voters, uh, Gen Xers, skew towards Trump as a demographic. It was a whole article about it, which did not make any sense to me whatsoever, but it sort of made this 
conversation about how we came up under Reagan, Bush, and Clinton, the triangulator, and somehow it came to pass that at midlife, some portion of us, and they were arguing a majority, uh, leaned Trump. And yeah. uh, I read it, that article too. Yeah, and I just was like, my head kind of turned, and I was like, this can't be true, right? Now, it may put a lie to the whole idea of Generation X being a certain thing that we think it is, right? It's sort of like when boomers think, well, boomer means whatever was happening in San Francisco in 1967 or whatever, right? But you know, we may not actually have the right idea about what Gen Xers are, right? Does that surprise you? I mean, I read that article, so I want like had at least six hours of like abject despair after that. <laughs> but also, I do think like, in our generation, we had this sort of like belief that we were entitled to certain things. And that entitlement tends to lead to, you know, if you if you feel entitled to something and mad and convinced that someone else has it, uh, that can lead to Trumpism. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Yeah. I never thought of it that way. That there is a a mutant form of the Gen X whatever can turn into Trumpism. Well, Patton, you pointed out this idea about irony, you know, this idea yeah. of irony, Patton, like as being a, you know, potentially metastasizing into something nefarious if it um, – Yes. You, you know, I, I mean – and there is some level at which Trumpism is a big wink, right? It's mm -hmm. like a, it's constantly winking at people with these like subtexts that you can be in on the subtext and you're in on the joke and yet is it a joke? We don't know. Right. It turns Except out Except that Trumpism, whereas Gen X was like the outsiders and the rejects trying to wink at the power structure and go, there's a way you can still survive in this. Trumpism right. is the power structure co-opting that and making it seem like they're the outsiders and the downtrodden. But what they're really the, – the evil wink is, oh, but we're going to stay in power. Don't you worry about that. You know, it's, I think there was a, a tie Hanisi, Nisi Coates wrote, said – after Obama was president and like, you know, one of the most competent, accomplished black men was in the White House to soothe white America. They had to put the most below average <laughs> incompetent white guy in there as a way to go. It's OK, guys, you're still in control. Like it was almost like a way to soothe the the uh, the burn of it. Yeah. Do we accept think that's true? Uh, Barack Obama as sort of grandfathered into the Gen X. I mean, he's. He's kind of not quite a boomer. He's um, in that age between. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I've, 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 because it doesn't appear there's going to be a Gen X uh, president. You know, that's a, a, when you look at what's out there, uh, it, it appears we may miss that window, which has sort of been a. Well, uh, I, maybe, maybe. I mean, I point out in my new special that in a way, Trump was inevitable because whenever. Every generation right before it dies throws a temper tantrum. <laughs> All Trump is is the boomer. It's the boomer's last temper tantrum. Yeah. Like when the greatest generation was about to die out and it's the late 70s and there's punk rock music and there's all these hippies making fun of them, and they don't know what's going on. They're like, put the cowboy movie actor in the White House. There, I mattered. I was here. And then the same thing happened. The, the, the boomers are about to, you know, teens are making fun of them on TikTok and they're not hip anymore and they got gray hair. And they're like, put the... Racist game show host in the White House. Boom. Yeah, you burnt. And uh, so who knows? Maybe when Gen X is about to die out, 
and we have our last big temper tantrum. We'll, and I say it in the special, we're like, we're either going to put Janine Garofalo or Eddie Vedder in the White House. We will do that out yeah. of our, and I love both of them, and they would both be terrible presidents. <laughs> and yet, yeah. and yet, I would vote for either of them. So, yes, your point is made. Yes. Well, yeah. I say the reason that Janine would win is we would go, we're going we're gonna to nominate you for president. She goes, I'm not doing that. And we'll go, yep. that's the attitude. We <laughs> Like, we totally love yeah, that. Exactly. She'll blow off the debates, won't show up for her own inauguration, and we'll love her yeah. even more. Let's talk for a minute about, though, uh, and I'm directing this to Radhika and Molly, but like we talk about us not being that political, but I don't know if that's exactly true for women Gen Xers, because I also remember in college that women's right to choose was kind of, this was the first, you guys were the first generation to have that as your inheritance, as a right, but it still seemed like it was under duress and that it had to be fought for, right? I mean, there is this sort of like, it was easy for a, you know, average white dude in Gen X, you know, in the Gen X 90s to uh, slack around and not think about politics, but maybe not exactly for women in every case. It's true. I mean, I was, happened to be born the day after the Roe v. Wade decision. So it was on the front page on the day I was born. So I, I literally... Have lived my life with it, but it is very, you, you're right, Joe. When I was in college in the early 90s, the one time I went, got on a bus and went to Washington to march, it was for a pro-choice rally. So clearly, it's it's hard to remember that, but clearly that was um, a politicizing. It was Casey, right? Maybe that's what it was. That was must, it Casey? That must have been. Yeah, because early 90s, yeah. Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So we, you know, clearly it was on our minds that this was not something that we could be uh, sanguine about. And we were correct, as it turns out. Yeah. Another thing I I realized thinking back on, on the politics of our time was that we were the first wave of what they used to call political correctness, right? That we were the first to kind of begin to have to look at the language. Um, and... I wonder if Gen Xers have a more ambivalent relationship to the modern version of it because of having kind of, although I would say that we largely adopted it, you know, whether we argued over it or not. Well, I mean, the modern version has also been ironized and weaponized um, against progressivism. And so, you know, every everything always gets used correctly and misused. So, you know, we're seeing now in a weird way, it's not that we're looking at, it's not like we're policing the language, we're policing the use of political correctness and how is it being used for good and for bad. Yeah. Let me, I just want to go back for a minute and have you expand on what, unpack a little bit about this idea of um, irony as particularly, you know, in the comedy world, in the alt comedy world, you know, Mr. Show or all the comedians that we kind of came up with. And I used to go to see like the alt comedy troops, like in the Lower East Side in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, and was all like playing with references and embodying characters that were negative, but like ironizing them and making them funny in the way that you talked about. But how does this, how has that aged? 
Some of it's aged very well. Some of it has aged badly, depending on how it was used. A lot of it, again, a lot of it was taken over by the alt-right and then used like, I'm just, come on, you, why, why can't, you know, it's the classic, how could, why can a rapper say the N-word, but I can't, you know, and then you got to get, you realize, oh, I can't get, I, I'm about to get into a debate with an idiot, so I can't, this won't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they a sort lot of, of people like, were grandfathering their racism and sexism into ironic alt comedy. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I you know, I've been thinking a lot about though, there are television shows and movies that are coming around now that are uh, reflecting our particular generation, which I'd never thought I'd see, by the way. You know, like <laughs> like I just thought they would pass us over completely. But mm-hmm. you know, Stranger Things comes along and it's basically mm-hmm. like the Goonies and E.T. mashed up with some great CGI. And then, you know, they're apparently making a Reality Bites TV program, which is, I have a knee-jerk. Um, mm. Wait, who's going to be in it? Well, yeah. I don't know, but I immediately thought if they're going to make some, like, young Gen Z kids into Gen Xers, I will find that just not right. But, That's going to um, freak me out. <laughs> I was watching this play the other day, and I was like, this mother is great. And then I was like, Oh, my God, she's like 10 years. There's no way she's not like 10 or 15 years younger than I am. (laughs) And then I asked my friend who wrote the play, I was like, how old is she? And he was like, you can't, you know. No, I just think we shouldn't be played by people younger than we actually are. (laughs) Should be the law. So you're saying it should be 53-year-olds playing teenagers. Yes. (laughs) Yes, That'll be so, yes. (laughs) I would watch it. Well, do a a pen 15 thing. Just get a couple of... Guys in their 50s, but put them back in that setting and just show, oh, that's what they're going to grow up to be. Yeah. Oh, man, Patton, if you will make that show. (laughs) I'd be too. Pen 15 is so friggin' brilliant. I'd love to know, though, if we have any spiritual errors in in Gen Z. You never know. There may be be some people who embody some of the best of Gen X. We got to give them a chance. That's true. I have been noticing in my admittedly small test group, but I meet young teenagers coming up now through my children and they know who pavement is, you know, oh. and it turns out like, <laughs> you know, there are kids that are listening to the nineties music. They're looking at the nineties. They're examining it for its pop cultural possibilities and rehabbing some of it. I mean, I don't know to what degree they're getting it. How could they, right? It's, it just seems so impossible for them to interpret but it's good that they're political. It's good that they care. I mean, I interviewed this young activist and like these kids are they're inheriting a world. I mean, I always think like we're the last generation that like had kids without believing that they were going to inherit a fiery planet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like because mm-hmm. the younger the generations after us were like, there's a moral question about whether you want to bring children into the world. And I was just like, oh, I guess we'll have three. You know, know, one of the reasons I thought about doing this podcast was uh, I do want to uh, give us some credit for possibly having like a something to offer the world still, even though we're totally ignored. And and there was a column recently (laughs) in The Times saying that, you know, even though we don't have a lot of cultural traction, uh, we are at the age where we're all in management now. You know, basically, the, we're, we're the ones basically like running whatever shop we're in. And there's one God person particularly on this podcast raising her hand right now. She, she's the one. And so, you know, we're quietly, um, you know, influencing things despite 
that because the millennials are um, working for us uh, mm-hmm. in in some capacity, although that to the degree Radica, they're still institutions. What do, you, what do you think of that, Radika? I mean, it's. I think it is true. I get. I come back to this idea that slackers, though we may have been labeled, there are lots of quite successful. And I mean that in the non-selling out way, <laughs> creatively <laughs> successful, successful from the point of view of leadership. Like there's a lot of, you know, a lot of our peer. I mean, I think about just in the Hollywood space, for example, right off the top of my head, uh, Shonda Rhimes, a Gen Xer, or yeah. uh, Ava DuVernay. And, you know, and these are also people, I name them not by accident, who are change agents. And it's kind of interesting to me that even at our advancing age, we we are actually still able to make change when we come into positions of power. Like there's something, I mean, Molly, to your point about maybe we were apolitical because we got boxed out of those, those roles for so mm-hmm. long by the boomers and we're still getting boxed out of them. But, but the truth is that having waited a while and having brought different values with us, I do feel like we have a capacity to make change. Um, when we come into positions of leadership and we, and I mean, I'll speak for myself, but you know, I we try to do it authentically. Uh, and there's something to be said for that. Right. Well, the one potential presidential candidate of the Gen X persuasion that we had was Beto, whose whole persona is authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. He did, I would say of all of the candidates we've seen, he's probably most representative of at least the cliche of the Gen X candidate, Right. Oh, and I saw some polling of his today that was just awful. Oh, talk about that. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> wow, what happened? No, I mean, he just, he's an impossible, I think, I mean, look, I hope that the polling was off and that he wins, but it's very, t- it's a very tough race for a Democrat. Yeah. Texas governor. Yeah, that big sigh of displeasure on, on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, as somebody recently pointed out that, um you know, he was a big fan of uh, Fugazi and uh, punk <laughs> bands of the 90s who were like super pure, Puritan, mm-hmm. you know, in there. And uh, that how could he be a fan of Fugazi and be running for president? He wouldn't even believe in doing that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm holding out hope, not just for Beto, but for somebody with their head screwed on straight, like all Gen Xers naturally are. Uh, to come in and kind of bring some sobriety and, uh, you know, sanity. Um, but and also, I, I, yeah. really quick, you mentioned Fugazi. You know, we are the, again, we're the generation that we even questioned our heroes. We were the first ones that really, if we loved something, we couldn't help but point out what was also wrong with the thing. Still didn't affect our love for it. Um, so I remember uh, there's a comedian, Todd Barry, who did this great, he pointed out about Fugazi. Fugazi is great. They only charge $5 for their shows. Here's my impression of the bassist in Fugazi. Hey guys, how about $7 a show? Because $7 a show over 30 years means I don't have a roommate when I'm 52. So there's that. So it's like, yes, you can still believe in the Fugazi ethos and maybe tweak it a bit so you can have. I don't want my heroes to be living in squalor just to so that I can feel authentic. How about something nice for them? So so he's like, why? There's no point in me not being trying to get inside the machine because maybe I can change it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to see at the end of this month, uh, Pavement, 
in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. which is a very Hang on, you're going to go see pavement in Brooklyn? Are you sure that's not going to rip open a hole no, in the time space? That is that's like a singular that's like a Gen X singularity pavement in exactly. Brooklyn. Exactly. Well, that's what I'm hoping will happen, but I also <laughs> realized that they probably have to tour because they didn't sell enough records in the 90s. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Got to go tour. What's this but record? I see what I, you speak of, Joe. A record? This what is record. that? Yeah. <laughs> Re- record. record. I, I am always for when I see one of my 90s alt heroes playing a residency in Vegas, I'm like, good for them. That yeah. means their kids' teeth are going to be straight and they've got yeah. some health insurance. They deserve it. Yeah. They gave me so much pleasure. Why not have a nice air conditioned uh, dressing room and a, and a nice, cool audience? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think exactly. That too. And, and I want, you know, Stephen Malcolmus to be able to have a membership at his local tennis club and, <laughs> and, and, and do all the things that are rightfully his, uh, you know, his, his inheritance. Yep. So listen, thank you guys for coming on this podcast to talk about this. I feel genuinely better after having talked to some of my brethren in this generation and connecting. We'll do it again in another 20 years and just see where we're at. But uh, it is, I, I, think that Gen X hearts were made for the apocalypse in the, in the mm-hmm. sense that we are here to add an extra note, an extra thought, right? Because that's what we excelled at. Can I just speak for Radhika and Molly really quickly and saying, I think this was all bullshit and we didn't change anything <laughs> and it doesn't matter. <laughs> just keep Whatever, Patton. I think this Whatever. is... This it's good. Yeah, it's yeah. just lame. Whatever, yeah. this is lame. It was a waste of time. <laughs> I'm sure Radhika, as the editor of this magazine, I'm sure she would agree with you heartily. <laughs> you don't the um, secret the secret tagline is by Gen X for Gen X. I don't know if you guys knew that. There you go. <laughs> um, right, and not appreciated by anyone else. That's right. <laughs> I'm now upbeat about President Garofalo, so I'll see you all when that happens. Yes, <laughs> see oh, you on man. the campaign trail. That's right. Man, we're going to send her this podcast and write, start this up. We're going to start this up. Right. There's no world in which she, like, invites us to anything. Right? <laughs> if anything, she makes sure not to invite us. Mm-hmm. Well, she can't even get this podcast because she doesn't have a phone or a computer. Exactly. So, uh, we have that work. <laughs> She's got that working for her. Um, Molly, Radhika, Patton, thank you so much for doing this. Until next time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.